I'm also looking forward to what God has to say this evening. Uh, that's always fun. Is that okay? I'm not in a cave or anything. Wonderful. Fantastic. Um, well, um, they should, at this point, thank you guys, that's great, uh, be receiving a, a palm cross, not a psalm cross, as I was saying this morning. Repeatedly, it is definitely a palm cross. Uh, so receive this, have it in your hand uh, for um, this talk, and we'll, um, I'll reference that in a little while. Um, yeah. So for those that don't know me, I'm James, I'm the associate vicar here. Um, and I add my welcome to that of John's, and it's great to have you here, even though we're a little bit um, low on people today. The Lord is here, and the Lord still wants to do what the Lord does, uh, which is a wonderful thing. Um, and you're here on a night where we carry on in a series looking at four different characteristics of God. We've just been through them in the morning, but I thought they were so foundational and so helpful, even for me personally, that it would be, it'd be something we wouldn't want to miss in the evening. So we're doing two of them this side of Easter, then when we come back on the, what was it, the 20, 22nd of April, when the evening gathering starts by, we'll carry on uh, doing the rest of them. So John did one of them last week, you did... God is good last week, so if you didn't catch that, go online, the, the, the talk's up there, have a listen. Uh, and tonight I'll be uh, carrying us on. Uh, and I believe that these truths, if we, if we really believed these truths, and if we really believed them in our hearts and we lived by these truths, our lives would be transformed. We would be truly free to live as God intended us to live, and how God has made a way for us to live. Does anybody else um, long to be free here? Or long to walk in the freedom that you hear about the Bible talking about? Well, I believe some of these, there's loads of truths about God, but I believe these four in particular, here they are, great, glorious, good and gracious, are some of the foundational ones about who God is. Uh, but tonight I'd love to start by reading, um, reading a story from the Bible, and it's in Luke chapter 15. Um, uh, beginning at verse 11. So if you want to find that, there's some Bibles over there if you want a Bible, or you can switch your Bible on, whatever you want. In that Bible, it starts at 1049. And if you have your own, I have no idea what page it's on. Uh, but tell me at the end, because I'd love to know. So Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. Jesus continued after another parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his properties between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wonderful. Well, Jesus gives us here an astonishing picture of what God is like. God is a loving father. And through the story of a son and his father, Jesus talks about what God is like. That's what Jesus does in the parables. He uses a story about something to look at a bigger truth about who God is and who we are. And in the story of the lost sons, it goes on to talk about another son that we're not going to talk about tonight. But in this story of the lost sons, the younger son requests his inheritance while the father is still alive in good health. And in the traditional Middle Eastern culture, this is equivalent to saying, Father, I wish you dead right now, even though you're still alive. I wish you dead and I want what I'm rightfully getting when you die right now. So it's as good as saying, I wish you were dead. And a traditional Middle Eastern father would normally strike a boy across the face and drive him out the house. There would be no messing whatsoever. And it's an outrageous request, which a father is expected to refuse. But the father in this story does not behave like that traditional Middle Eastern patriarch father. In an act of extraordinary love, of grace, he breaks tradition and gives his son freedom to sell his proportion of the estate that would have brought shame on the son and on the family before the entire community. So the son got all together, got everything that he had together. In other words, he turned it into cash so that he could go out on a spending spree. Then he set off and left the town as quickly as possible. I don't know about you, but so many people, uh, including myself, um, have experienced what this younger son found while he was away from his father, either for a season or maybe before coming to know God and inviting him into our hearts. We suddenly get to the point where we realise we're wasting life in some way, and he squandered his wealth in wild living. We get to a point where it doesn't satisfy anymore. He got to the point where it began to hurt, what was going on. Often when we live a life outside of God's laws, outside of God's commands, outside of God's presence, outside of the love that he's pouring out for us, we begin to hurt and do things which are not good for us. He became enslaved. He hired himself out. Again, when we live without the life giver, we end up not in the freedom that the life giver gives us. Because if we take the life giver out of the equation, what's left? Death, not life. He felt empty inside. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. He felt alone in this world. No one gave him anything. Now, returning to his father was not an irrational act at this moment. It was the opposite. He came to his senses. You know, returning to God or coming to God for the first time is not an irrational act like many would say, it's coming to our senses. One person said that Christianity is not the opiate for the masses that one person has called it. Something to make us feel good about ourselves. That's not what it is. But it really is the smelling salts that wakes us up to be truly alive. When we come to God, it's like having the smelling salts and all of a sudden our eyes are open to be who we're called to be and who he's made us to be, and the love that he's always had for us. 
So this was a sensible thing to do. He decided to swallow his pride and go back to his father. And he was prepared to admit he was wrong. So he planned to say this to his father, I've sinned, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He was trying to prove himself before his father. Then he took the step of faith and he got up and he went to his father with his plan. And he, at this point, did not know what would happen. He had an idea about what might happen, because what would be normal for a father to do and for a village to do would be to cut them off. And they would be disgraced. They'd be failure. And the, the father realises full well how his son would be treated if he would be returned. Apparently what they would do, they'd kind of fill a jar with soil and they'd smash it before him to signify him being cut off from the village, cut off from the community, disgraced. But as we know, the father also prepares a plan to reach the boy before the boy reaches the village. He knows that if he's able to achieve reconciliation with his son in public, no one in the village is going to treat the son badly. God's love is extravagant. While the boy was still a long way off, his father sees him. It appears that he's been watching, waiting, and he's never forgotten the love for his son. In the message, it said his heart was pounding. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. And the word used in the original language implies that he kissed him over and over again. It's the love of the father being poured out in a way which is reckless like the song that we sing about, reckless and extravagant. And the son begins his prepared speech of repentance, but the father interrupts at this moment. He treats him as an honoured guest, giving him the best robe. He gives him the sign of confidence by putting the family ring on on his finger, restoring his authority as an heir to the household that he's just squandered. Do you see what's happened there? It gives him, makes him an heir to the household, half of which he's already squandered. He's got his authority and his inheritance back at that moment. He puts the sandals on reserved not for slaves but for sons. And he plans a lavish celebration, go and fill, kill the fattened calf. And here we get a glimpse of what God is like. We see a picture of the kingdom of heaven being a party every time one person opens their heart to Jesus. It's like a party in heaven. And this is the opposite of what many people think. Maybe some people think that, oh, you'll, you'll just get across the line and God will be like, oh, you were cutting that fine. Get in. Let's shut the gates. No, it's a lavish, extravagant, outpouring of love for every person that comes home. (coughs) Maybe some people don't associate God with music, dancing, feasting, celebrating, reckless love, being undignified. So who has heard this story before? So have I. So why am I and why are you still trying to prove yourself? Tonight, the truth I want us to engage is with from this passage that we've heard a million times is God is gracious. We see his grace poured out in this passage. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove 
myself. Grace means unmerited favour, a real goodness that we haven't in any way deserved, yet we receive it anyway. God's riches at Christ's expense is what another person explains it as. And in Romans 1, verse 25, it says, They, us, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Stress, fear, anxiety, striving, trying to perform, keeping public face, the false smile as we enter in the doors of church, this level one small talk of, hi, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? Yes, I'm okay. We keep it up. All these things are based on a lie. Ultimately, a lie that we've believed about God. All those things and more that are not of God. These are heart issues, not believing who God is and who he says that we are. And they are absolutely crippling. And I know that because I have to walk with them. And I know that because probably most people in here have to walk with them in different seasons and different times. They are absolutely crippling. But you know, living for Jesus, a life giver, is not just about a secure eternity with him in heaven, although that is entirely true and wonderful and the party's raging. But here and now, we get to know that God is gracious, not just in our heads, because someone at church told you, but in our hearts. And the problem for us is often that it hasn't gone from head to heart. This has been something that God's been saying to me a lot recently, personally, and I've found he's said it through me to other people. The problem is often that it hasn't gone from head to heart. We often only engage with our heads. And I would say to some degree, Cambridge engages with its head very well. We're not necessarily trained in how to engage with the heart. But if we were to properly believe these truths, in head and heart, we would be living how Jesus lived and how he made us to live. You know what that's called? That is called freedom. One person said, God sees us as we are, he loves us as we are and accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. He calls us to be narrowing the gap between head and heart. This is what some people who like big words call sanctification. Becoming more like Jesus who modelled to us what it means to be more truly human than anybody had ever seen on the face of the planet. If you want to know what it means to be truly human, look at Jesus, who modelled it for us in perfect relationship with the Father, empowered by the Spirit. So we need to narrow this gap from what we say, what we sing, to what we believe in our hearts. And often people blame their circumstances, often I blame my circumstances, but really our action reveals our hearts. You know, it might be a stressful time. It might be that there are deadlines. It might be that our to-do lists are too long. It might be that things are going on around us, maybe in our families that we can't control. 
But hear this this evening. Our circumstances do not affect the truth of who God is and who he set us free to be. Do you think the son in this story knew in his heart that his father was gracious? Do you know in your heart that God, your heavenly father, is gracious? Do I know in my heart? A number of years ago, uh, back in, just have a drink of water. Now I've preached that first bit, excuse me. A number of years ago, back in 2008, I finished, um, finished university uh, and went to do an internship just outside of Manchester. I'm going to knock that water over. Uh, just outside of Manchester. And I was working as a youth and community intern at a church up there. Uh, and I was split across church youth work centrally uh, and what was going on on a local estate. So it was quite fun. Uh, and it was an amazing community project that was going on, working with people in, in various different cycles of poverty, uh, from financial poverty to health poverty to educational um, employment poverty. And I was convinced, in possibly in my naivety, that within the first week of James Neal arriving in this place, revival would break out. I was absolutely convinced. Uh, so I went in there expecting it to happen within the first hour of me arriving, and I'm absolutely fine if that was to happen. Um, but revival for me at that time uh, meant that maybe these people would come to church, they would sing the same songs as me, wear the same clothes, speak the same language about God as me. Um, yeah, probably quite a na naive view. And a few weeks in, um, I realised it was more of a long game uh, with these people, of walking alongside them, of loving them, of drawing out their godly identities than I'd ever realised. Uh, before. Uh, and I asked the grand question uh, to my, uh, bless him, to my boss at the time, why aren't we just going for this? Why are we just wasting our time? Why are we just wasting our time? Now is the time James Neal has arrived in South Manchester. And my boss, Joe, who's wonderful, um, and he said, well, mate, why don't you go for it? Go and share the gospel. Let's get your revival started. Um, so I stood up on a chair in this small, slightly dingy, smelly, damp room uh, full of a bunch of people I didn't know um, whom I wanted to prove myself to, uh, a boss who I wanted to prove myself to, and in some ways God who I wanted to prove myself to, um, and that my way of doing things was what this place had been missing all these years. So I stood up with no plan, I stuttered a few words out, uh, was heckled, then absolutely bottled the would you like to invite Jesus into your heart moment, and then sat down again. And it was one of those awful moments, um, but it was a moment where I felt exposed. Has anyone ever felt exposed before? Exposed, where all of a sudden you know you can't prove yourself in a situation, you've been found out. Absolutely awful. I hadn't proved myself to anyone in this moment, and all the insecurity uh, that I had was laid bare before everyone I wanted to prove myself to. Um, so I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I was slightly cross. Um, but you know, at this moment, I wasn't operating from grace at all. I was operating for grace. I was trying to earn grace in this moment. Uh, and you know what I did? Um, I, I got in my car and I ran away. I got straight in my car after the youth group finished. I think I even left early. I got in my car and I ran away. I went to visit my then girlfriend, now wife, Emily, who was going on a night out in Sheffield. 
uh, and I arrived there in record time, went on this night out, running away from the place where I felt exposed. And when we try and prove ourselves and then realise that we can't, it's easy to run away. It's easy to run away. And ultimately, it's because we don't believe God is gracious. We believe we'll be exposed for not being good enough to ourselves, to others, or whether we realise it or not, God. The next morning I was late for work and as I had to get back to Manchester, my boss, uh, Joe, called me. And I'll never forget his tone. It was kind of like a, hi, mate. Just wondering if you're coming to work today. Um, And later on that day, uh, when I arrived, he walked up to me, gave me a hug, laughed at me in my face, said, Mary, did you run away? I did that once as well. Uh, But he showed me this ultimate grace. And he did more than that. He called me to step in more to who God had called me to be. Uh, And over that year, some of you have heard part of the story, over the year I grew in love for those uh, young people uh, and uh, and the others um, more centrally uh, at the church. And I took over the youth group for the next four years. And over that time along with a fantastic co-youth worker, a brilliant team, saw numerous people invite Jesus into their hearts. Others encounter God's goodness, some healed, some set free from stuff that was stopping them from being who they are. The youth work grew, and that was wonderful. Coming here, I applied for the job, absolute call of God, let's go for it. Got the job, and then freaked out about two months thinking there were going to be theologians in the congregation. I cannot prove myself any longer. They'll definitely find me out. I'm not a theologian in the slightest. But what I realised, these are small examples of in my life, but in those moments, I'm not operating from grace. I'm operating from my drivenness to prove myself. And there was a shift that that I started to operate from grace. That was a shift, the outrageous grace of God. And when that comes first, you don't have to prove yourself to others. You've received the ultimate approval that you need. And you know, God's grace, God's approval, rightly aligns any other need to prove yourself. Because it might be that you're in a job where you've got to meet a deadline. You've got to prove that you can meet that deadline, right? It might be that there's a a job where you're getting loads of um, projects coming your way. You've got to prove that you can do the project. But if you're rightly aligned with the approval coming from God first, those things seem to be in the right order. And there's a reason, isn't there, that before Jesus did anything, he was baptised and heard the voice of his father saying, this is my son whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. Before he did anything, he'd... Jesus himself received the approval of the Father. Now, if Jesus himself received that, I think we might need to. And when I realised, and on the days uh, that I put it into practice, um, not every day, when I realised that God was gracious and therefore I didn't have to prove myself, I was not primarily concerned about my own need to prove myself but it shifted. I wanted to affirm God-given identity in others. 
to look for the God-given character gifts of those around me. Became less me-centred. And ultimately it became okay to see someone do better than me. Even though previously I probably would have thought they didn't deserve it. They haven't been a Christian for long enough to be doing those kind of prophetic words. That kind of stuff. I'm in no way sorted in this area, so this preach is really almost a testimonial. But I do catch myself, but I have to align myself again and align my heart. So beginning to come in with this, nearly. Um, where are you trying to prove yourself at the moment? Maybe you're trying to prove that you're not proving yourself. I don't know. Is it that I'm not good enough? I've, or No, is it that you're trying to prove that you're good enough or that I've got it together, that I'm a good Christian? I don't, I don't mess up. Things always go well when I'm asked to do them. I'm always right. I'm good enough for this university. If I only get some stage time at some point, I'll prove myself. Maybe you're trying to prove yourself to yourself and you have this recurring thought in your head that you're not good enough, that I must achieve to be love. Maybe it's to... Um, prove yourself to others you live to be approved of by others and sometimes to be honest you seek it out from others maybe it's seeking the approval of your family over everything that you do maybe you're trying to prove yourself to God trying to earn his favour or his blessing that although you know in your head the word of grace, it doesn't seem to stop you from reading the Bible, coming to church, praying, because you're trying to prove yourself. Have you ever felt like you've sinned and messed up in some way and convinced yourself that God isn't going to bless you because of it that day? That's trying to prove ourselves to God because he's already poured out the grace. When we see God as gracious, we drop the facade, we drop the mask, we acknowledge who he is and therefore the favour in which we stand. And we can live in freedom. Because believing God is gracious in our hearts is what we're made for. That's why it's freedom. Here's a little quote from a guy called Tim Keller. If you've not heard of him, read his books. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life, the Bible's purpose is to show you how God's grace breaks into your life against your will and saves you from the sin and brokenness otherwise you would never be able to overcome. Religion is if you obey, then you will be accepted. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is if you are absolutely accepted and sure that you're accepted, only then will you ever begin to obey. Those two are utterly different things. Every page of the Bible shows the difference. Do you obey God, live for him from a place of knowing his grace for you, or to try and earn that grace? And it comes down to an issue of motive. No longer seeking to prove ourselves, but operating from grace. If we do this, it means we can try and be the best person we can be. We can excel ourselves, but not to earn grace, but from a place of already having grace. We can seek to be a blessing, uh, be great friends, be great colleagues, managers, whatever it may be, 
uh, and be great, um, great people to others around us and be known for it, but not in order to get grace, but from grace. And we can seek to live a life for God, choosing to do what he says and live how he says we get to live, but not to earn grace, but from grace. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world, you might have heard this before, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever proves their self to him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's grace upon grace upon grace, bottomless grace. So as the band came up, I'd love us to grab our crosses. We may as well use them for something. No, they're great. I love palm crosses. And this is a sign of grace for us that we can take away over the Easter period. If you're unsure of God's grace, look to the cross, which is an incredible thing to do in Holy Week. What I'd love us to do is just in a moment, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that we, as we gaze upon the cross, we admit to God, we lay down before God's feet again those places where we've been looking to prove ourselves. So let me pray. Holy Spirit, share us. Share us where we are trying to prove ourselves. And come, Lord, and set us free. I speak to stress and say, be stilled in Jesus' name by the grace of the Lord. I speak to fear and say, be stilled in Jesus' name because of the grace poured out for us on the cross. I speak to all anxiety in this room across our church and across this city. And I say, be still by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, freely given to us through the cross. Speak to striving. Say, be stopped now. Be stopped now in the name of Jesus Christ who freely pours out his grace. I speak to performance uh, in us and in this city, in our young people, in our children, uh, in in the adults, in their various forms of employment, uh, in any, any part, any facet of this church. And I pray performance fall to the ground now before the feet of Jesus and the grace of the Lord come in and lead us into greater things for you and with you and by your grace. And I'll speak to every mask or facade that I or anybody else here this evening has put on, knowingly or unknowingly. And Jesus, by your grace, by your love, by your mercy, smash them off by the grace of Jesus Christ that he has poured out for us on the cross. There is no one then, not even the greatest human being, who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. 
And there is no one, not even the worst human being, who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ if there is repentance and faith. So wherever you are, whether you're far off, whether you're um, there with the Lord at the moment, whether you feel it or not, this grace is for you. And we're going to turn to worship him now. Um, And I encourage you with these crosses, worship with the cross, the sign of what God has done by his grace this evening. So let's stand together.